0: This is Hashtag History episode 113. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this week we are going to be taking a deeper dive into more of a true crime topic. But this particular true crime event is one that really shook history. It has a lot of historical and social context to it. For those that consume true crime content, which is... Almost everyone yeah. at this point, right? Yes. Like, it's essentially all that Netflix puts out anymore is a true crime documentary, which I'm not complaining. No. But that and Love is Blind. And Love is Blind, which also, not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> it's either true crime or um, reality love shows, yeah. which, yeah, I'm right up there for both of those because pretty much everyone consumes true crime content now. I think that a lot of us have, you know, like a case or two or three that really sticks with us.
1: I know Jean- JonBenet Ramsey is yours. Yeah. Or one of them. Right? One of them, for yeah. sure. For sure. And
0: this one is my other one. Yeah. <laughs> this one here that we're talking about today. The Atlanta child murders is one that I always go back to time and time again yeah. and try to consume as much information about it as I can. So, I think most people are familiar with the Atlanta child murders, but for those that are not familiar, these were a series of murders that occurred in Atlanta, Georgia between 1979 and 1981, which resulted in the deaths of approximately 29 people, the majority of which were children. An Atlanta man named Wayne Williams was eventually arrested and convicted of the murders of two of the adult victims, but still to this day, no one has officially, legally, been charged with any of the other murders. In particular, the murders of more than a dozen children. There are many people that do not believe that Williams was responsible for the deaths of these children, including some of the parents of the children. In fact, there is some evidence that perhaps the KKK may have been involved in potentially upwards of 14 of the murders. But I, I do think it's important to note that the murders did indeed stop after Williams was arrested. Hmm. Regardless, these murders have left a deep wound in Atlanta, with many believing the true killer or killers has not been brought to justice. As recently as 2019, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms reopened the investigation and has sent for new DNA analysis and testing. We're still awaiting these results. I think the reason this particular series of murders always sticks with me is because of the racism that was at play and the way in which it affected the investigation. All of the victims in this case were Black, and it's an issue that we all know very well today that victims of color statistically do not receive the same attention and effort as white victims. And so I always wonder about this case. Had these 29 victims been white, would there have been 29 victims? Mm -hmm. Would the killer have been caught sooner? Would the victim's families have been listened to earlier on? the Atlanta child murders were highly, highly political and had a lot of racial and social themes tied to it. I'm really looking forward to diving into the story from the stance that I find it really interesting to look into and to reflect on how the historical and social contexts contributed to it. But it is truly tragic. And we will not be doing any speculating or theorizing or anything like that on this podcast. These families have been through enough. Which brings me to the topic of true crime ethics. This has been in the purview of Uh discussion
1: around true crime in the last few weeks. For sure.
0: And I think a lot of that stemmed from the Dahmer show on Netflix. Yes, It's a new wave that we're coming into and one that I welcome with an open heart and mind to listen and learn and do better. With the massive consumption and popularity of true crime these days, there has also come this new wave of really just like stepping back and making sure that when we're listening to true crime or when we're telling these stories, we're doing it in an ethical way. Totally. I think part of the problem with the true crime industry as a whole is that it has a tendency of romanticizing or even sexualizing serial killers. Like I was just saying, the Dahmer show, I know that that's been one of the largest complaints about that series is that it romanticizes this horrible, horrific serial killer Mm -hmm. instead of focusing on the victims. And I mean, that's what we end up doing with a lot of these true crime things that we consume is we end up remembering the killer more than we do the victim. Yeah. And that's not what I want to do here today. I will be mentioning each victim by name and I want it to be their names that we remember when we think of this case, not the name Wayne Williams. Tiffany Reese of Something Was Wrong podcast recently said it really well. She said, would you rather be a true crime fan or an ally to crime victims? Words matter. Yep. As a consumer of true crime content, it's my goal to keep that in mind. I obviously am not a fan of people going missing or being murdered. I am a fan of analyzing these stories, learning more about the victims and their families, identifying holes in the justice system and where it failed, And making sure that something like this never happens again. Finally, something else that we have from time to time struggled with on this podcast is switching gears from discussing such horrendously tragic events in history to then trying out a cocktail. Totally. We've discussed this in past episodes that our cocktail segment is never, ever, ever meant to make light of the heavy topics we discuss, but rather it's just an opportunity to provide a little bit of levity in the midst of what is otherwise really, really dark. Totally. So with that, let's see what this cocktail is that we have before us, and then we'll dive into this case. Yep. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption.
1: So this week's cocktail sponsor made me tear up a little bit uh, my dear dear friends jill and alex bought us three cocktails and left the sweetest message along with their money 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 <laughs> they said y'all are killing the podcast game and we are so f-ing proud of you love you madly Oh, with a little heart that's so sweet yeah so i'm not crying you are. <laughs> I am
0: actually. <laughs> <laughs> that is so sweet. Jill yeah. and Alice are both so supportive of the podcast. They're patrons, they buy the merch. They send us suggestions and this these are not the first cocktails that they've sponsored nope it's so sweet thank you guys yeah we love you both so much thank you um
1: and you dear listeners don't have to be my bff to buy us a cocktail although it helps
0: it, it does help <laughs> it does uh <laughs> lift you higher in the ranking right. certainly right you do get further up in the top eight on her myspace on my myspace page yeah, yeah. definitely jill's always been number one <laughs> <laughs>
1: You can support our drinking and the podcast overall by going to hashtag history-pod.com, finding the support us page, and either buying us a cocktail, joining our Patreon, or donating to us on Anchor. There's so many options to give
0: us your money. <laughs> and also, just thanks for listening. Yeah. But, I mean, if you feel so inclined... Right. We would say no. We would never. <laughs> we would never
1: say no. Right. Okay. All right. This week's cocktail. Yes. When I think Atlanta... I think Georgia. Mm-hmm. When I think Georgia, I think the South. Mm-hmm. And when I think the South, I think of bourbon. Okay. Okay. So this week's cocktail is called the Citrus Bourbon Smash.
0: Sm-meow. Smash. Smash. <laughs> That (laughs) sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, I found this cocktail on the Waiting on Martha blog, Okay, uh, who is actually from Atlanta. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so shout out to her as long as this cocktail proves to be good, (laughs) which I'm pretty confident it will be. And
0: if it's disgusting, thanks a lot, Martha. Yeah, (laughs) Martha. (laughs) But I mean, just based on the sound, it's going to be great. I I know it. Yeah, so it contains uh, two
1: ounces of bourbon, a quarter cup of fresh citrus juice i mixed lime and lemon together club soda Mm -hmm. simple syrup and basil leaves it looks
0: beautiful it smells amazing i say we dive in i I say we do okay Ah. i love it you do i love it it's very citrusy very i put a lot i mean citrus is in the name wow super citrusy i actually love 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 this i do too i love the
1: basil any herbs? Mint, basil? Agreed. Let's, let's do it.
0: <laughs> I'm going to put this probably like a nine. That was a very tart. <laughs> it's really tart. A very tart drink that I just had. Whoa. <laughs> it's really tart. Um. <laughs> I feel like now I'm just salivating. Yeah.
1: No, but I I am up there. 8.5.
0: Yum. Thank you, Martha. Thanks, Martha.
1: Good job. <laughs> Good job, Martha. You did well. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Something we've often opened up our episodes with is an acknowledgement that we are simply not going to be able to touch on absolutely everything in this case. Right. We hear from our listeners that they appreciate that we keep our history content to bite size amounts and keep most of our episodes to under an hour. That means by default that we will inevitably not be able to go down every rabbit hole, unfortunately. This case is certainly no exception. There is so much information out there about the Atlanta child murders. In fact, there's a podcast called Atlanta Monster that is so long and has so much information that I was able to start and finish it while driving from my home in Sacramento, California, all the way to Disneyland in Anaheim, California, which is like a six to seven hour drive, depending on what what, are you looking at me like that because it's less for you. I feel like
1: it's like an eight hour drive, but maybe that's because oh. the last time I drove down was with an elderly woman that I didn't know.
0: That's right. Okay. Maybe, I mean, it certainly can be. It depends on what time of day you leave. I think if I remember correctly, this was like we this is actually this was the time Alex and I drove there after work one day. So it's like we missed all the L.A. traffic. because oh, We didn't even yeah. leave Sacramento till like five. And then the one time we drove together with
1: our friend Lisa again, same. We left after like five. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I think th- those are closer to six to seven. Depends on who you're driving with and at what time. Yes. it can certainly be an eight-hour drive. Right. My point is that. <laughs> if anyone needs um disneyland road trip advice just reach out we could also start a podcast about that absolutely but uh, one of those tips would be to not be listening to the kill the witch song from um wicked when we were going through the grapevine that was creepy creepy. with lisa right That was disturbing and it was like foggy and yeah we have all the tips but (laughs) for the sake of what we're talking about today The Atlanta Monsters podcast is like, there's just so much information in it that I, like I said, started and finished it on like a roughly seven hour drive. So as always, if you are interested in digging into more information on this case, there are a million resources out there and Atlanta Monsters, definitely a really good one that I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. Now, as always, we have to set the background and context of this incident before we can fully dive into it. Compared to a decade prior, when the white population made up nearly 62% of the demographics in Atlanta, by 1970, this had flipped with Black Americans making up the majority of the city. And then in 1973, Maynard Jackson was elected as mayor of Atlanta, making him not only the first Black mayor in Atlanta history, but also the first Black mayor of any major city in any Southern state. Oh, wow. Jackson dedicated much of his three terms to trying to reduce the racial tension that existed within the city and really helped to develop and cultivate minority businesses and artists. One of the largest accomplishments of his mayorship was the reconstruction of the William B. Hartsfield Atlanta International Airport, renamed the Hartsfield Jackson Atlanta International Airport. After Jackson's death in two thousand and three, airport names are weird, ridiculous,
1: and and they all have like five names.
0: Definitely, like
1: how John Wayne Airport is also like Orange County. Yes, is also something else. What
0: I was thinking is our Sacramento one, SMF, and what does
1: that stand for again? Sacramento Sacramento Metropolitan
0: Flight Path. Flight. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also the Sacramento International Airport. Anyway. so long, so much going on. <laughs> this particular airport became the largest construction project in the South, totaling some $500 million. Whoa although the Atlanta airport is not the biggest airport in the United States, it has ranked as the busiest airport since 1998. That's shocking. I've never been, I've never flown through Me there. Me neither. But they said it's a really common place for people, you know, on the East Coast to be flying. I mean, yeah. well, both coasts, just it's kind of a central yeah. location. There's a lot around it. The Atlanta airport can take you anywhere at any time. So yeah, it's been the busiest with the exception of in 2020. Obviously, the there was a lot of A lot less flying in 2020 Mm that was going on. But yeah, since 1998, the busiest airport in the United States. That's
1: shocking to hear.
0: Yeah. Jackson, in particular, was committed to making the Atlanta airport a sight to behold and something that would continue to attract both domestic and international visitors We also know that Atlanta served as a city where groundbreaking civil rights events occurred. And so following the civil rights movement, Atlanta really branded itself as the quote city too busy to hate, unquote, and made it their mission to show what things could look like in a post Jim Crow world. So obviously, there's a lot going on in Atlanta this time, socially, economically, racially, and politically. And it's in this climate that the first child was murdered. I kind of equate it almost to the Olympics and how, you know, cities like they're trying to showcase, put their very best foot forward. I see that kind of similarly in what Jackson was trying to do with the airport, was make it a place that anyone from all over the world could come to and say, wow, what an amazing city. like world fairs, that type of thing. Exactly. While trying to hide, unfortunately, this dark underbelly or Mm -hmm. these secrets and things that are going on. And again, that's part of why the Atlanta child murders is so fascinating is because a lot of the early murders were overlooked and i think a lot of that is because of the political climate and trying to showcase atlanta and brush things that aren't so pretty under the rug definitely yeah exactly so we're not going to go into detail about how all of these people were killed Um, in fact i don't Say at all how they were killed, with the exception of a few if their injuries were particular to the investigation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do want to give you all a heads up that some of those details might be sensitive and difficult to hear. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through a timeline of each of the victims and then we will discuss the investigation. 13 year old Alfred Evans went missing in late July 1979. When he was found on July 28th of that year, He was found in a wooded area, missing both his shirt and his shoes. Found alongside him was 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith, who had gone missing around roughly the same time. These two murders is where the whole story would begin, but we only recognize that now in retrospect. At the time, law enforcement assumed that their deaths had been drug or gang-related and gave their murders little attention. Of course. But then, only a little over a month later, on September 4th, 14-year-old Milton Harvey went missing after having last been seen running an errand for his mother only a few miles from his house. His body would not be discovered until November 5th in a remote part of Atlanta. The body too decomposed to determine what exactly had happened to him. Wow. Shortly before Harvey's body was found, a nine-year-old boy named Yusuf Bell was headed to the store to buy tobacco for a neighbor. Witnesses report that he was last seen getting into a blue car. He would not be seen again until November 8th, when his body was found at an abandoned elementary school. In response to Bell's body being discovered, one of his neighbors said, quote, The whole neighborhood cried because they loved that child. He was God gifted, unquote. The majority of the victims were boys, but the next victim was a 12-year-old girl named Angel Lanier. She and her mother had just recently moved to Atlanta when she went missing one day after school. She would be found six days later in a vacant lot. Only one week later, a 10 or 11-year-old boy named Jeffrey Mathis went missing. Similar to the story of Yusuf Bell, a witness would later report that they had seen Mathis get into a blue car with two men. Two? Mm-hmm. Mathis's body wouldn't be found until nearly a year after he went missing, which made his cause of death impossible to determine. Yeah. What is particularly tragic about Mathis's death is that we know that just the night before he went missing... He and his mother had been watching the news together and saw coverage of the other missing and murdered boys, to which his mom, you know, reminded him not to talk to strangers. And he responded, quote, Mama, I don't do that. I don't talk to strangers, unquote. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. And the list just keeps going on. (sighs) On May 18th, 1980, a 15 year old boy named Eric Middlebrooks went missing. He was last seen taking off on his bike. His body would be found the following day alongside his bike outside of a bar, and his pockets had been turned out. Middlebrook's murder was particularly suspicious because he had actually just recently testified at a court hearing against other juveniles that committed a robbery. Mm. So this murder kind of threw law enforcement authorities off, as many thought his death may have been an act of revenge conducted by other juveniles in the neighborhood. Yeah. Roughly a month later, a 12-year-old named Christopher Richardson was headed to a public swimming pool when he went missing. His body wouldn't be found for approximately six more months, and when he was found, he was found wearing unfamiliar clothing. On June 22nd, the second and final female victim, 7-year-old LaTanya Wilson, went missing. This one is particularly wild because, according to one witness, they said that they had seen Wilson being pulled out of her apartment window by two men. Her body wouldn't be found until October of that year, and again, similar to you know many of the other witnesses, at that point, it was too late to determine what had happened to her.
1: That, I know, I can see it Did on your that, face. Does, was that not reported
0: that you saw a child being dragged out of their window? Uh, um, I actually, I don't know the timeline of if it had been reported, and then she went missing, or if it was after she'd been found. They were like, oh yeah, interesting, actually. Um, I weirdly just saw her get kidnapped.
1: Yeah. So... Isn't that such a weird one? Yes. It's so weird. That one's weird. Honestly, what's weird about all these is they're so different. I mean, I know yeah. that there's, there are consistencies. Uh, they're like preteen. I agree. Children and preteen black children. Yeah. But yeah.
0: other than that, they're like all over the place. And we're not going into details of how their injuries, yeah, how they were yeah, killed. Yeah. But those are also all over the place. I know what you're saying is oftentimes a serial killer has like a method. Right. Of yeah. how they kill. And it's... If we were going into details, it's all over the place. Yeah. What their entries looked like. I completely agree with that.
1: I know we'll go into the investigation more, but I'm curious to know like what their thoughts were about all this. Definitely. Yeah.
0: So just one day after Wilson went missing, a 10 year old named Aaron Weich went missing. He was last seen getting into a blue vehicle with, depending upon the witness account, one or two men. His body was found the following day underneath a bridge. This one, I am going to talk about his injuries just briefly because I think it is important to the investigation. His injuries were a broken neck. And so initially, it was believed by law enforcement that he had had an accidental fall from the bridge. His mom quickly refuted this, though, stating that her son was afraid of heights and would have never been so high up from the ground unless forced. The next to go missing was nine-year-old Anthony Carter. He would be found the following day on July 7th, 1980, when his body was discovered near a warehouse. Later that same month, 10-year-old Earl Terrell would go missing after leaving a local pool or playground. It's kind of, uh, there's discrepancies in where exactly he was last seen. Mm -hmm. His body would not be discovered until January of the following year. And when his body was found, it was actually found alongside Christopher Richardson, the 12-year-old that we talked about earlier that was found wearing unfamiliar clothing. The following month, August of 1980, the body of 13-year-old Clifford Jones was found near a dumpster. And something to note about Jones is that he was actually not even a resident of Atlanta. He was from Cleveland and had only been visiting the area at the time of his murder.
1: It's like the Emmett Till story.
0: Exactly. He was visiting his grandma. It's horrible. Yeah. Which then if you look at that, then that plants a little seed in your mind about who would have intent to maybe hurt a little black boy. I know you mentioned the KKK at one point. We did. And Mm -hmm. we will be talking about them again shortly. The following month, a 10-year-old named Darren Glass went missing. It's reported that he frequently ran away from foster homes, but one time when he went missing, he did not return. To this day, his body has never been found.
1: My, my knowledge of Atlanta is based around like a few things. Mm. Number one, um, the show Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, and number two, The Walking Dead, which is filmed in oh. Atlanta. Um, yeah, so I forgot about that. I I know that Atlanta, like there's obviously the main city, just like, any other city and then out the outskirts of it is like not swampland but like it's very wet wet and um wild like forests essentially yes and so that's not overly surprising to me honestly i'm surprised so i I wouldn't be surprised if there's more that haven't been found oh
0: i I always i mean i think that with every serial killer is like these are the victims that we know about there i oftentimes think there are more than that yeah and to Go back to Darren Glass a little bit. In some of the research that I did, he was not always included in the list of victims. Yeah. Because there is that piece of he was a foster kid. He ran away from the foster homes a lot. Yeah. So maybe it's unrelated. However, it happened at the same time as all these other kids missing and murdered. He, yeah. He fits the age and race. Yeah. And, and, and location demographic that sometimes he is included mm-hmm. in the list. Yeah. On October 9th, 1980, 12-year-old Charles Stevens was reported missing. His body was found the following day in a trailer park. Something important to note about the discovery of his body is that, in addition to discovering him, of course, uh, law enforcement also located a green fiber. From the scene. Okay. Now, fiber analysis was a relatively new technique at this time. And the fact that investigators were analyzing fibers found at the crime scene ended up becoming public information. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where, you know, they try to keep some things close to the vest yeah. to like so you don't know where things are going with the investigation. But this was revealed. Uh, you know, it was like shared on news programs mm-hmm. that they were using fiber analysis. And so it's believed by many involved in the investigation that the killer or killers became aware of this information from you know perhaps hearing it on the news and therefore began disposing of the bodies in a different way so as you'll hear uh, as we continue to discuss the remaining victims many of them were found in bodies of water which also kind of leads to what you were saying about atlanta being really marshy yeah. wet there's there's a lot of rivers and bodies of water mm-hmm. flowing in and around atlanta totally It's believed that the killer began to do this as a means of removing any evidence that may have remained on the body after the murder. Yeah. Hey everyone, Rachel here, and you all know that Leah and I both love to read. You also know, though, that we are busy 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 all the time between full-time jobs a side podcast gig other everyday responsibilities it can be super hard to find the time to read and that's why we have been super enjoying audible audible is the leading provider in spoken word entertainment and audiobooks they have titles ranging from news self-development business fiction and more Not only do they have audiobooks though, they also have podcasts, wellness guidance programs, and more. The best thing about Audible is that you can download titles to listen to offline, anytime, anywhere, across all devices without losing your spot. And Audible has thousands of titles for you to choose from. The one I am currently listening to on Audible is Lincoln's Last Trial, the murder case that propelled him to the presidency. If you would also like to try out Audible, you can do so with a free 30-day trial now when you use our link at www.audibletrial.com hashtag history. Once again, that is www.audibletrial.com hashtag history. Thanks. To continue with the horribly long list of I victims. I was going to say, it just keeps It's going. ridiculous. It's, uh, you know, on our end, a little behind the scenes for you listeners. We write up, you know, a, a rough script of all of this. And this has been four plus pages. Four Bullet plus pages of this. Uh, yeah. Each victim. Yeah. Exactly. Nine-year-old Aaron Jackson was reported missing on November 1st of that year, only to be found the following day lying face up in a riverbank. At the end of the month, 16-year-old Patrick Rogers went missing. And something that I imagine is just common sense at this point is that, of course, many of these victims knew one another. I mean, many of them, they're roughly the same age. They're growing up in the same neighborhoods. But the police files specifically make mention that Rogers knew several of the victims.
1: And something you'll find or I've heard Mm Sacramento is like a big city. Mm -hmm. Despite big cities, there's like all these microcosms of like small towns in a big city. You know what I mean? I feel that way all the time. Like Nico always talks about, because he's not from Sacramento technically. Mm -hmm. And so when we go out he's like you know everyone and i'm like that's because we live in the same area i grew up in so like obviously i'm going to see people i went to high school with or my teachers from elementary school yep like i don't know everyone it's just like yes despite living in a pretty
0: big metropolis i feel that way all the time which almost freaks me out because i'm like sacramento i mean we're not like huge huge but there's a lot of people here totally and the fact that You run into someone that you know at the grocery store. I mean, just the odds of it that you would run into someone that you haven't seen in 10 years, but you know them because it's all it's a small world. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. So Roger, in early December, when his body was discovered, it was found in the river with evidence of a head injury. He became the first victim that law enforcement believed had been dropped or pushed from the bridge above. Something that is important to remember for later. Okay. In early January of the following year, -year 14-year-old Luby Jeter went missing while at or near a mall in Atlanta. Almost exactly a month later, his body was found in a wooded area. Also in January, 15-year-old Terry Pugh went missing. His body was found the next morning on the side of the road. In February, the body of 11-year-old Patrick Baltazar was found in an office park. The following month, 13-year-old Curtis Walker's body was found in the South River. Also that month, 13-year-old Timothy Hill's body was found in the Chattahoochee River. The month after that, 15-year-old Joseph Bell's body was found in the South River. And then, at the end of March, the body of the Atlanta child murderer's first adult victim was discovered. 21-year-old Eddie Duncan was found on March 31, 1981, in the Chattahoochee River. And this started an interesting trend. Not long after that, the body of another adult male victim was found. 20-year-old Larry Rogers. His body was discovered in an abandoned apartment building. Before his disappearance, he was last seen getting into a vehicle with a blackmail. Shortly thereafter, 23-year-old Michael McIntosh was discovered. His body was found in the South River. Only a week later, the body of 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne was discovered in the Chattahoochee River. In the same month, the body of 28 year old John Porter, the oldest of the Atlanta child murder's victims, was discovered in an abandoned lot. Then, in May of that year, the body of 17 year old William Barrett was discovered in a wooded area. And then, on May 24th, 1981, the body of 27 year old Nathaniel Cater was discovered in the Chattahoochee River, less than 100 yards from where Payne's body had been discovered. Mm. Eyewitnesses said that they last saw Cater with a local Atlanta music promoter named Wayne Williams. Cater was the last known victim of the Atlanta child murderer. Ugh. All right. Let's take a moment. Yeah. Glad that you said that because I put a little note in here that if we were to take a minute of silence for each one of the victims, we would be sitting in silence for approximately half an hour. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I know mothers already feel like their babies are not safe out in the world, but this must have quadrupled that feeling. Yeah, Your baby can't go anywhere or do anything. They can't go to school or run to the local convenience store or go see a friend. And you have that security of knowing that they're safe. Mm -hmm. And not only as a parent, do you feel as though your children are not safe, but it feels as if no one is doing anything about it. Right. I mean, can you imagine if... In Sacramento, if nearly thirty children and young adults turned up dead in a two-year time frame, <laughs> and we did not get the sense that authorities were doing anything about it, it's right. horrible. Right. Yeah, even after the first dozen or so victims had been discovered, Atlanta police still weren't making connections between them. Mm-hmm. This infuriated the Atlanta community, the mothers in particular. Oh yeah. Camille Bell, Youssef Spell's mother, helped create a group with the other victims' parents that they called the Committee to Stop Children's Murders. She encouraged the other parents to press for answers and to demand accountability from the authorities. She encouraged local citizens to get to know their neighbors and to keep an eye out for strangers. In a statement that she gave to People magazine, Bell said, quote, We were encouraging the busybodies to go back to dipping into everybody's business. Yeah. We were saying that if you tolerated crime in your neighborhood, you were asking for trouble. Unquote. Call the Karens. (laughs) Call every single one. (laughs) Call the Karens. (laughs) Every last one of them on the phone tree, call them. This committee was standing in for official authorities by keeping tabs on their children at all times, volunteering for neighborhood patrols, and even doing their own searches for bodies and further evidence. This group created enough of a disruption and raised enough attention that the police actually did increase not only the size of the task force that was looking into the murders, but they also increased the reward money to $100,000 for anyone that could provide tips. Hmm. And finally, not long after the committee was started, local authorities reached out to the Federal Bureau of Investigations and asked for their assistance. Can you believe that? That it took this long. It's
1: just crazy because I feel like the FBI is so react, not reactionary, but like you hear about stories about like, Oh, two murders. Oh, FBI. Is 100%. Involved. And so to hear that 30. Yes. Happened. Uh, yes.
0: So finally, finally, at this point, the murders were getting the serious attention that they deserved at its peak. There were more than 100 local and federal agents working on a task force for this case. The mayor even imposed a 7 p.m. curfew for the city's children. High-profile people were getting involved in the case. Muhammad Ali contributed an additional $400,000 to the reward money. Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra performed a benefits concert to more than 4,000 people at up to $500 tickets. Okay, okay. I know. I'm trying to with, do the math there. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and that money was going directly toward the Atlanta child murders investigation. President Ronald Reagan had more than a million dollars diverted to assist with the investigation. Vice President George H.W. Bush made a personal visit to Atlanta. The list of high profile names donating time and money to this now high profile case just goes on and on. And that's mm. great. And I, I
1: it deserves that attention. Mm-hmm. It's just I hate seeing like bandwagon like, yeah. oh, now you're going to come 100%. and support, like now because it's the thing to do. Yes. It, you're going to give it your time, attention and money. That's yes. really messed up. Instead of
0: being there after the first one, two, three kids yeah. were missing and murdered. Why didn't you step in then? Yeah. One of the first things investigators had to do in order to catch the killer was to create a profile for the killer. Right. Yeah. They had to know who they were looking for. Creating a profile for a killer and using behavioral sciences to do so was still a pretty new thing at this time. The FBI had only just formed their behavioral science unit in 1972. Mm-hmm. The Atlanta child murders would be the first high profile case that the BSU would get involved in. And the profile that they drew up for the killer was a highly controversial one. Mm. I mean, I don't think it's a far off assumption. We've already done it ourselves a couple times in this episode to believe that the brutal murder of dozens of black people in the South could be a hate crime, likely at the hands of a white supremacist or a group of white supremacists. Right. But John Douglas, FBI criminal profiler, felt otherwise. For one, we know that the victims all lived in predominantly black neighborhoods. Would a white man or woman feel as though they could go undetected when entering a predominantly black neighborhood and interacting with the children there? Mm -hmm. I mean, when I think about this particular case and the fact that so many of the victims were children, I think we do have to consider the fact that they must have trusted or felt comfortable with this perpetrator to some extent I see you're kind of, maybe not. No, I I get that. Mm -hmm. I also
1: think that at this time and in this context, it was still very much like a hierarchical kind of thing where like a white man approaches you, you have to do what
0: he says. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, have you seen Mindhunters, the show? I have bits and pieces. Oh, it's so and good. And obsessed with it. I love that show so much and I'm still devastated they didn't go beyond yeah. the second season. I love it. The second season focuses almost entirely on the Atlanta child murders. Mm-hmm. And there's this one scene in the show where they test out this theory yeah. that it could be a white man yeah. behind these murders. And granted, this is after like a handful of the murders have occurred. So people are on high alert. Right. These mothers are watching their babies every second. So the FBI, they like, pull up in this like apartment complex that is predominantly black yeah and the kids are kind of like playing in like a playground or whatever Mm -hmm. this white agent gets out of the car he walks towards the kids that are playing and he starts to kind of like hey guys what's up how's it going and you see all these moms like leaning out from their apartment windows and are and like they start yelling at him like what are you doing here can i help you is there something you need he's like oh never mind let me go he gets back in the car and the agents all look at each other and they're like okay That answered.
1: Yeah, I see both sides. 100%. I I see one, especially once it's like people are on high alert Mm -hmm. and stuff. I could see. Yeah. Just like you said, or like the FBI was saying, Mm -hmm. um, that makes sense to me. It also makes sense to me that if I'm on my bike riding down the street alone and someone who I consider or have always been told I have to respect and be careful around and listen to talks to me, what am I going to do? Yes.
0: And again, we've said it a couple times, the immediate thought process is that it's a white supremacist that's behind the murder of all of these black children and young adults. John Douglas, the FBI profiler, his profile said that the perpetrator would have had to have had a profession or that his regular activities would need to be something that would bring him into regular contact with children. I think, I mean, that's a good point, too, that it, it needs to be someone that does have regular contact with kids. That it's not weird. Yeah. That that person is regularly interacting with children. Yeah. But- Like I said, like we've said, the idea that this person was black was extremely controversial. The last person that the community wanted to pin this on was one of their own. Mm -hmm. After developing this profile, the next piece investigators looked at to find their suspect was the location where the bodies had been dumped. And I'm sure as you'll recall, Leah, and you our listeners, many of the victims had been dumped in bodies of water. Authorities decided to stake out at close to a dozen different bridges across the city, thinking this might be a place that the killer had been using to throw the bodies over into the water. One such body of water that authorities staked out at was the James Jackson Parkway Bridge, which ran across the Chattahoochee River. Okay. While there in the early morning hours of May 22, 1981, detectives heard a quote, "big loud splash," unquote. Moments later, they saw a 1970 white Chevrolet station wagon drive across the bridge. About a half a mile from the bridge, police stopped the car and found inside 23-year-old Wayne Bertram Williams. Wayne? Yeah. Which we've heard his name before. Yes.
1: He was uh, the last person seen with one of the victims. Exactly. Yeah.
0: On-site investigators said that the first words out of his mouth when they pulled him over were, quote, I know this is about those boys, isn't it? unquote. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Williams's explanation for being on this bridge at almost three in the morning was pretty interesting. He told the police that he was a local music promoter and that he had an audition with a woman named Cheryl Johnson the following day. Therefore, he wanted to take a drive to confirm that he knew where the address was. And I, I mean, you're, you're kind of shaking your head. I have personally done this before when I had at like three a in jo- the morning. Okay, let me finish my story. <laughs> no, not at three in the morning. No. And that's what I was going to say is I- I've done something oh, very I- similar before where it's like if it's a big job interview, totally. you drive, you, you find make sure you know, lot. you yeah, especially for all those government interviews, government job interviews that I've had that they're all downtown and you have to make sure you know what like the parking situation is. Yeah. You have to know where the Starbucks is, the local one, so you can reward yourself with a caramel macchiato for Absolutely. getting through the interview. So. I, in a sense, I get what he was
1: doing. I get it. But also... Not at the time. It's interesting. And when you are the last person seen with one of the victims, it just feels...
0: It feels weird. Ick. That's what he says he's doing. Okay. And then he gives the police the name and number of the person that he was meeting for the audition. However, when investigators looked into this information further, they found that neither this number nor a person named Cheryl Johnson existed when authorities searched the vehicle they found gloves and nylon cord in the passenger seat yeah they asked Williams a few more questions you know they asked him about if the car was his to which he responded that it's actually his parents whom he lived with and then although it felt a little sus that this guy was driving over bridges at 3 a.m for an audition the following day and that he had gloves and nylon cord in the passenger seat there was no legal nor valid reason to hold him up any longer and so they let him go But two days later, on May 24th, the body of 27-year-old Nathaniel Cater, whom we discussed earlier, was found floating in the Chattahoochee River a few miles downstream from the bridge. Mm -hmm. This led investigators to believe that Cater's body was the splash that they had heard the other night at the bridge and that Wayne Williams was indeed the man responsible mm-hmm. as they continued to investigate Williams, they found that he, as a music promoter, had been going around these neighborhoods where children had gone missing and handing out flyers that well i 'm actually i 'm just going to have you check it out, Leah, and you read to our audience what this flyer says
1: Can you sing or play an instrument if you are between eleven and twenty one male yeah. or female? And would like to become a professional entertainer, you can apply for positions with professional recording acts. No experience is necessary. Training is provided. All interviews, private and free. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's kind of eerie.
1: 11 and 21. That's essentially the I know there was some that were older and a few that were younger, but.
0: And something else that the Mindhunter show kind of dives into is that these neighborhoods were generally more poor neighborhoods. So if you have someone that's investing time in you and is giving you opportunities that could lead to money, Mm -hmm. that's really enticing to a kid. If there's a local music promoter saying, hey, I think you have talent. Yeah, you follow that guy. Yeah. And (laughs) forgive me if you said this already was williams white i'm sorry i didn't say that he's black he's black okay thank you for saying that yeah no wayne williams is black which is going to lead to a lot of the controversy as to why they were even looking into him in the first place thank you for clarifying that yeah so yeah that i mean that flyer is pretty compelling Mm -hmm. at least that's what investigators thought and they started zeroing in on williams and obtained a warrant to search his home and vehicle There, they collected various fibers and dog hairs that they were later able to confirm were matches for those that had been found on the bodies of Nathaniel Cater and Jimmy Ray Payne. Mm -hmm. They brought Williams in for questioning, and he didn't do very well. In fact, although inadmissible at court, he failed three polygraph tests. The same day, Williams conducted a press conference at his house in which he shared with the media that he felt he was being framed. He told the media that he was innocent and that he was being used as a scapegoat, that the police and government were desperate to pin the murders on someone, anyone, anyone but a white person, that is, and that he was the one that had to take the fall. As investigators continued to collect and analyze evidence, Williams was placed under 24-hour surveillance. Between the cops and the media, there were people staked out at Williams' parents' residence, every day all day yeah a a few times just for fun williams would even hop in his car and send the police on a wild goose chase as they just followed him throughout the city this reminds
1: me of john wayne gacy
0: definitely definitely which i mean that's something to talk about too is both williams and gacy have that need for attention Mm. and that was something that was written in the profile for the atlanta child murderer wants attention was going to be someone that wanted attention Mm. But then on June 21st, 1981, Williams was officially arrested for the murder of Nathaniel Cater. A trial was held early the following year, January of 1982, with a jury made up of nine women and three men, eight of which were black and four were white. The trial lasted two months, and the prosecution presented a pretty damning case. They had identified 19 different sources of fiber from Williams' home that connected directly back to some of the victims, as well as eyewitness accounts of people that had seen Williams either in these neighborhoods where the children had gone missing, or even directly interacting with the victims shortly before their deaths. Williams' defense team maintained that he was the scapegoat for the murders, The defense team even got the judge to agree to allow the jury to take a personal trip to the James Jackson Parkway Bridge so that the jurors could see for themselves that this, quote, short and pudgy guy, unquote, could not have possibly thrown a body over the bridge. Despite advice from his attorneys, Williams took the stand in his own defense. And this did not go over well. Yeah, He came across as very defensive, very inconsistent, And overall, a pathological liar. And this was really detrimental to his case. In fact, there were jurors that later stated that they were convinced of his guilt not because of any fiber evidence, but because of his testimony alone. It took the jury only 12 hours to find Williams guilty of the murders of Cater and Payne, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Williams is currently serving his life sentence at Telfair State Prison in Georgia. In 2019, he was denied parole making him eligible for parole again in 2027. He has continued to assert his innocence and has attempted to appeal his conviction, but to no avail. Interestingly, as we discussed in the introduction of this episode, once Williams was arrested, the murders did stop. Mm -hmm. But now is where we have to dig into the controversy and conspiracy. Because although Wayne Williams has been dubbed the Atlanta Child Murderer, he was only ever convicted of the deaths of Cater and Payne, two of the adult victims. Right. Legally, no one has ever officially been charged or convicted of the deaths of dozens of other victims. Yeah. Even John Douglas, the profiler that helped to identify Williams, has been quoted as saying that while he believes Williams responsible for at least some of the murders, he cannot confidently say that he was behind them all.
1: And that's what I was going to say is mm-hmm. we need to do our due diligence mm-hmm. to try to solve those murders, whether it leads to Williams or not. Absolutely. I. I it's really unfair and just not okay to... Just be like, oh, well, we got a guy. Yes, you know what I mean. I I feel like it's not okay to be like, oh, there's these twenty five other people that weren't rushed to just just... assume that this guy
0: did it. Yeah, and that there's no justice for those kids and for their families. No, that's totally unfair. Yeah. And honestly, speaking directly to that, after Williams' conviction, many in Atlanta and even across the country made it known that they did not feel he had been the murderer of the children. Right. In fact, even Camille Bell, the mother of Youssef Bell, whom we discussed earlier, she was the one that was leading that committee that really drove law enforcement to take these murders seriously. Yeah, She was quoted as saying that Wayne Williams should be considered, quote, the 30th victim of the Atlanta slayings, unquote. Following the trial, a handful of the witnesses that provided testimonies actually recanted their stories, saying that they were pressured by the police to say that they had seen Williams with the victims in the days and weeks before their deaths. Something else that was also concealed at the time of the trial was that the Georgia Bureau of Investigations was actually actively investigating possible ties between the KKK and at least some of the children's murders. Mm-hmm. This investigation went so far as to get a wiretapping warrant out on KKK members, something that has to have some pretty solid evidence in order to be granted by a judge. However, this information was never shared with Williams' defense team and therefore never shared with the jury. Hmm. In a quote from one of Williams' lawyers, he said of the information, quote, It was deliberately and consciously suppressed at the time because, we believe, a fear that anyone finding out about potential Klan involvement would escalate racial tensions in Atlanta and around the country to a point where it was dangerous, unquote. An article that was released in Spin Magazine in 2015 stated that the Georgia Bureau of Investigations had strong evidence that Klan's members had indeed been behind the murder of at least Luby Jeter with evidence of links to upwards of at least 14 other victims. In fact, at a hearing in 1991 that was requested by Williams's defense team in an attempt to get a new trial, they presented evidence that a recruiter for the KKK had actually unknowingly admitted on tape to having killed Jeter. So there's that. (laughs) Moving on to kind of more the, the forensic evidence. Every time I personally have thought on this case, you know, I've, I've never been able to definitively say Wayne Williams was behind every single one yeah. of the murders. Yeah. But the one thing that's always come back to me for his guilt, you know, that physical evidence, the carpet fibers and the dog hairs that were found at his house and also on the victims. Yeah. I mean, that's some cold, hard proof, right? Or totally. it feels like it. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> if you'll recall from earlier in the episode, I mentioned that fiber analysis was a very new investigative technique at the time of these murders. hmm Additionally, in more recent years, it's been discovered that the particular FBI lab where a lot of the materials in the Williams' case were analyzed was horribly organized and maintained. Uh This led to the FBI actually admitting in 2015 that many of their analysts had, quote, provided either testimony with erroneous statements or had submitted laboratory reports with erroneous statements, unquote. So even the one piece that it felt like maybe was more, yeah, hard evidence- might not be
1: yeah like like you said at the beginning it's not our job to like pass a judgment Definitely. or like speculate speculate or, mm-hmm. but i i will say until you said that i i was like yeah he probably did those two murders maybe some of the other ones we don't know that's not my place to judge but hearing that obviously I know. changes
0: now unfortunately this is usually the part of the episode where we you know say it sucks but we may never know but hopefully that isn't the case this time in just 2019, newly appointed Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announced that the Atlanta Police Department would be retesting evidence collected from the Atlanta child murders. Yes, Mayor Bottoms said, "quote It may be there is nothing left to be tested, but I do think history will judge us by our actions, and we will be able to say we tried." Unquote. Later, she stated that in reexamining the case, "quote I hope that says to the public that our children matter." African American children still matter. They mattered in nineteen seventy-nine and they matter now. Unquote There have been no recent updates on the re examination of the evidence, but I hope for the sake of the families and for the Atlanta community, we all have more answers soon. Yeah. If you are interested in learning more about the Atlanta child murders, I again recommend listening to the Atlanta Monster podcast. It is so good and provides so many more details than I was able to. And then I've already mentioned it a couple times in this episode, but I also highly recommend checking out the second season of Mindhunters. I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix still. I hope it's on Netflix I think still. So, yeah. I hope so. The whole second season focused on the Atlanta child murders, and it does a really good job of really covering how the parents felt about law enforcement and their involvement at the time. Yeah. I also wanted to close out this episode by suggesting a way that you can support the Atlanta community. I know that it's not specific to the Atlanta child murders, but Atlanta recently experienced tragedy when they were hit by hurricane Ian. I wanted to really encourage our listeners. If you have the means to give to the American red cross in Atlanta as a way to help that community and to show them that their lives and their well-being matter to all of us. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Hashtag History.
1: We will share the picture that we discussed on the episode to our Instagram and all sources used to put together the episode can be found on our website, which is hashtag history-pod.com.
0: Subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use, share about us with your family and friends, and then give us a rate and review.
1: And be sure to check us out on our socials. We are on Instagram at hashtag history underscore podcast, and we are also on TikTok. So check us out there at
0: hashtag history, all one word. And I know our running joke is that we don't post anything to TikTok. Get ready. We're starting to up our game a little bit. We're upping it. We are upping it. And by that, I mean maybe one video a week. (laughs) That is a huge progression. (laughs) That's what I was going to say is don't expect anything more than like one every seven to ten business days. Correct. But that's still better than our seven to ten business months Months. at this time. Right. (laughs) Right. So I think we're doing pretty great. Yes. And also we'd love it if you came and joined us over on Patreon, where for as little as one dollar a month you can help support our books and boo supply. You also get access to some behind-the-scenes content, weekly hashtag hangout episodes, and automatic 15% off all merchandise. And we mail you cards and stickers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>
0: was the I, I saw in one place that that's a real word yeah. and then I never saw it again no, if I'm you a type bit. okay I was like because when I was reviewing this again I was like is, is that real no, I that typed sounds, it into it Google totally. and it was nowhere what yeah if you highlight and just Google it Goog, 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 Google it oh it came up for you <laughs> There's like a thesaurus. I swear to you. I swear. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I swear when I Googled it again, it didn't come up one time. And I was like, did I? It's because I wrote this episode like a week ago. Oh I was like, God. did I come up with that word a week ago? I love it. Look at those. I know. Damn. And my, my loudest laugh is like this big. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. The name. I know. It's really bad. I, I want to like laugh it. every time. I, I know. It. <laughs> Move on to the next thing. Stop thinking about it. Mayor Mayor Bikini Bottoms said.
1: That's what I keep thinking
0: of. You go bottoms.